particularly in care environments, the more that we can make an environment feel like home, um, we're finding that, that the evidence says the better that that environment is. We want to definitely move from an institutional model where something feels like a hospital, which is a corridor with, with bedrooms off each side, straight corridor where the, the nurse can see everybody and what's paramount is the operation being as efficient as possible, to move to a more spontaneous environment like you would have at home where where you have a household, and that's often a frequently used term for neighborhood, it's a household number of people that might be, you know, 10 to 14, that um, feel more like a family, that uh, share a living room, a common area, that dine, um, perhaps even at the same long dining table, who can um, operationally have input on what their meals are going to be. Again, it's going back to that root of we all want autonomy. We all want that sense of not having lost ourselves and our ability to direct decisions in our lives. Welcome to the Wonder Podcast. This is Cece, be your host with a really fascinating conversation, yet another fascinating conversation with uh, someone in our ecosystem, in our design ecosystem. We've been thinking a lot about design for aging, and we actually started thinking about that uh, prior to COVID-19. And we recognize that the impact of the pandemic has had a remarkably powerful impact on our seniors and senior housing situations. So we were wondering if there was someone in our world who could have a conversation with us about this. And we came across Leslie Moldau, who's a principal at Perkins Eastman. And she has decades in the industry, I'm going to say, devoted to the study and the exploration of the most effective senior housing, and that's progressed over time. So I'm going to welcome Leslie. Hello, Carolyn. Thanks for joining us. And I'd like you to spend a little bit of time and explain your journey to where you are today. Okay. Um, well, as inexplicable as it may seem, I became smitten with architecture even before I knew the word for it. Um, in second grade, I was building models of schools and forts and whatever project the teacher gave. It always turned into something three-dimensional. And my family had no idea where that came from. Uh, I stole my brother's Legos and um, built forts out of blankets and tents and, uh, and learned that this field was called architecture. Um, and uh, read books about Frank Lloyd Wright when I was, you know, in fifth grade. And, um, and I was fortunate enough uh, not to either be dissuaded, um, but encouraged in the field. And um, as I started to study architecture, I was influenced, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was influenced by social action, um, just like we have now, there were anti-war rallies that were going on, and and there was a sense that something that you did in life, you could have a big impact on how people lived and on making the world better. And so 
that wove into uh, my desire for architecture. And when I studied first at the University of Maryland and then went to Berkeley, I started to really realize that my um, interest lied in developing architecture that created a strong sense of community and that really did have a strong social impact. Um, and to that end, I first started working on uh, special needs housing. There was funding when I was living in Boston for special needs housing. And so I worked on housing for people who were quadriplegics, um, housing for people who uh, had emotional difficulties, uh, battered women's shelters, housing for pregnant teens who had been formerly incarcerated. Um, and I had an opportunity to work on the first AIDS housing um, in the United States. And while all of those are incredibly significant events in my career, the federal government and other government sources um, dried the funding up for those still very necessary projects. And um, in the process, I was introduced to some new types of senior housing and realized that that was also um, a confluence of my interest in creating community and in creating supportive housing. Um, and so in addition to special needs housing, I started to focus on seniors and senior design. And that was in the mid eighties when, um, you know, it was pretty bad, the, the design of what people imagine and recall nursing homes are like, and there are still nursing homes that are like that out there, could only be made better. So there was a really um, op real opportunity to create a huge impact in improving the quality of those environments and affecting the lives of seniors in a positive way. I uh, read the book, uh, Atul Gawande's book. Um, and One of my favorites. Is it just, it's such a lovely, lovely book. And, uh, and our father was older and was becoming more and more dependent on resources and help from others. And the, the concept, and he spoke very clearly about the, the wellness aspect of, of human beings when there is a, a more thoughtful, intentional environment to support them through whatever the disease or the aging process. So we, we wanted to, you to talk about your approach to creating senior living and how is it different from some of those other types of housing, I would say general housing, but then some of those other types of housing projects that you have worked on? Well, first I would say that in many ways it is fundamentally the same, but it just allows you to focus on aspects that you may not normally focus on in housing. I mean, it, Perkins Eastman's motto is human by design. And that means that everything that we work on is really focused around the user and the, the operator and uh, creating wonderful environments that, that highlight everyone's everyday experience. And that's what all architecture and design should be. And I'm sure that many designers out there strive for that as well. Um, so, so that's the common route. We're still designing for human beings. Um, they just have had different experiences in their life and they have a different kind of needs than someone might have when they're 20 or, or going to school. 
Um, senior living used to be focused on care exclusively. You'd read descriptions of senior living communities and they'd talk about how we care for you. And um, it was very solicitous and it was very appropriate, I guess, on the former generations. But as baby boomers are aging, um, we don't want to be cared for. <laughs> Uh, I mean, certainly we'd like to know that if we need care, um, there's that resource there, but, but we want our autonomy. We've always wanted our autonomy. And so at a, at a base level, all the design really has um, integration of universal design principles, which means that uh, the design should take into account someone who has arthritic hands and may have a problem picking up a, a pot of hot water on the stove and bringing it to the sink to drain, you know, or may, um, or needs to address people that can't bend over and load a dishwasher the same way that we do, or reach up to a high cabinet, or, um, or who may be optically affected by certain patterns of a carpet or tile flooring because of the type of vision issues they have. And really the type of design that we create needs to at a minimum um, not add a problem to someone right i mean we know many people who are living in two-story homes and as they age uh, they just can't drive or, or even negotiate their house anymore and and we shouldn't be designing anything that that creates impediments mm -hmm. and conversely we should we should be designing uh, places that empower people to live longer and live well. And so at a base, what makes it different is it has those design principles baked in. Now, that being said, what makes it special and what's particularly interesting to me is that it's not just a care environment, actually it's housing and hospitality, and it's an environment that focuses on, on empowerment and creating a place where people can be their best selves um, and where they can age gracefully and age in a way that they can um, still be uh, enlivened and useful and interact with other people and, and have their third act. Uh, it's not a place where people retire and get sent off to. You want to still be in the middle of the action. Mm -hmm. So I, I came across your, uh, the Perkins Eastman, publication designs impact on seniors perceptions of wellness in the built environment and I thought it was well incredibly comprehensive but the aspects of whole person wellness and then the wellness strategies that you implement to impact make that impact or have that influence comprehensive is the best word it just keeps coming into my mind because it seems to go across yes all the physical emotional social intellectual you've, you've thought about all aspects of of that whole person wellness could you talk a little bit about the the um creation of that document oh absolutely let's see where do i start um so as i just spoke about really senior housing communities are about places that people can be the best that they are, their best selves. And there's been quite a bit of research about longevity in seniors and about the types of things that impact that longevity. There's um, 
if people listening to this want to do some additional research in the blue zones, there was research scientists did on um, five different locations across the globe. And what was it in common that allowed people in those locations to be very long lived and, and very active? And uh, what they discovered uh, shouldn't be a surprise in this time of COVID is that we are social beings. We need, we, we, we really need to interact with others. We need to be close with others. Um, we need to be physically well. We need to eat well. We need to be mentally stimulated. Um, we need to be engaged in volunteerism. There's a spiritual side to our wellness. Um, so there's a number of dimensions of wellness that we have learned to incorporate in our design. And I think at a minimum, we're designing based on a program of spaces that our clients have. You know, so we're designing dining in a certain way. We're designing um, exercise rooms in a certain way. We're designing spas and salons to have um, certain activities and wellness. But I think, but, oh, and, and educational and, and recreational facilities. Um, but overarching all of that, I think is a real, uh, is the, is the knowledge that as human beings, we come for, from, um, we are biological creatures that come from the greater environment. And we, at a very biological level, um, interact with that environment, uh, whether it's how daylight affects our hormone balance or, um, you know, or myriads of other things that we're discovering. And so our buildings need to allow us to, um, to connect with the environment, uh, both just, you know, allowing us to be outside and feeling the breeze, allowing us to perhaps sit by a fire, the fireplace and, and feel the warmth and observe the spontaneity of the flames. But even how we move through space, even creating serendipity and what we expect, even um, in patterns of interiors, recognizing that our brain perceives certain fractals in a certain way, and that we respond to, um, to that kind of stimulation more than we do a type of monotony. So at all of those levels of wellness, we are learning to incorporate those principles into our designs. And that's why we did the paper. And so the last thing I want to leave you with is it's very important at Perkins Eastman to not only include those principles in our design, but to verify at the end, did they have the intended principle effect that, that we intended? And so following up with, um, with post-occupancy evaluations and research is very key to, to what we do at Perkins Eastman. And we believe in sharing that information with other designers. And so I'm really glad you got the chance to read it. It was, it was quite impressive. And it certainly gives a, a massive amount of information to process and, and absorb. And in, in such a broad sense, when I think about not only design, but just living today, especially for our seniors, but life in general, how to incorporate all those things. And it, it was 
to me, an aspect of, of beyond lead, beyond well buildings, the International Living Institute. It's, it's incorporating much of that type of, of methodology and more. So I, I give you great kudos for that particular bit. I did want to ask a question about the research component at Perkins Eastman because you have principal researchers as well as the designers. Could you tell us a little bit I more do. about um, Actually, the idea for, for researching uh, started in senior living design. We're very proud of that, but now it's very pervasive throughout our whole firm and uh, other areas like education and um, you know, work-related environments, um, et cetera, do their own research. We started by calling it PERC, Perkins Eastman Research Collaborative. And um, one of our first senior living buildings in the mid-80s got together um, some social scientists and psychologists. It was to design one of the first memory care buildings in the United States. Um, we researched some buildings in England. We brought some of those principles over. We uh, invited these social scientists to be part of our team, and we developed some core principles that we wanted to um, imbue in the project that had to do with neighborhoods and wayfinding and orientation and um, recognizing perception and what caused ag agitation and trying to minimize agitation. Um, in, in people living with, uh, with Alzheimer's. And um, that project won the AIA 10-year award. It was very influential. It was one of the first that used the idea of uh, kind of memory boxes that is just all pervasive in the industry. And um, since then, we frequently do post-occupancy evaluations on our projects, testing them against what we were hoping we were achieving and then um, and share that. Um, and we, uh, we let our researchers know early on in our projects, these are the intended principles that we're including. So they're very mapped out, very intentional at the beginning. And we keep those principles all the way through the project. We tell our clients this is what we've heard from you. This is what we've learned. This is what we're trying to achieve. And all of our designers literally have it posted over their desks. And when we talk to the contractors during value engineering, those are those sacrosanct elements that we keep in the design. And then in the end, we're able to verify, did they have the impact that we hoped they did? Hmm. The holistic approach to your designing for humans is um, is is very apparent. Now I want to move to more specific project questions. And there was another article, recent article um, about senior living, and it talked about the pocket neighborhoods and a couple of the projects that Perkins Eastman has worked on that incorporated that uh, design concept, if you will. Could you speak a little bit more about that, how, we, how you came to that and the values and uh, benefits that have been derived from that model? Sure. 
Sure, and um, just to be clear on the language, because I think pocket neighborhoods can refer to a number of things. It can refer to in housing, um, a courtyard of small homes around a green space. But are you referring more to clustering units in a multifamily yes. configuration? Yeah. Um, so particularly in care environments, the more that we can make an environment feel like home, um, we're finding that, that the evidence says the better that that environment is. We want to definitely move from an institutional model where something feels like a hospital, which is a corridor with, with bedrooms off each side, straight corridor where the, the nurse can see everybody and what's paramount is the operation being as efficient as possible to move to a more spontaneous environment like you would have at home where, where you have a household, and that's often a frequently used term for neighborhood, is a household number of people that might be, you know, 10 to 14 that um, feel more like a family, that uh, share a living room in common area, that dine um, perhaps even at the same long dining table, who can um, operationally have input on what their meals are going to be. Again, it's going back to that root of we all want autonomy. We all want that sense of not having lost ourselves and our ability to direct decisions in our lives. So um, that idea is becoming more and more accepted in uh, care environments. Um, and with COVID, we're actually finding the greenhouse is a, as a trademark of that kind of neighborhood household model where it's literally a house or a floor of a house, like an apartment with 10 to 12 people in it. Um, and they're finding anecdotally that those households are staying much healthier than the institutional model. Um, where you have staff that's dedicated, it is more like a house mother, if you will, um, with staff, they become almost like a bubble. Everybody knows who's coming and going. Um, they have each other to keep each other company. They're not just locked in their rooms on the corridors. So I think coming out of this COVID experience, I, I think we're gonna be seeing the next generation of um, care environments taking on that household model. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, there's kind of two questions that follow this. One is, are these concepts and approaches more expensive or less expensive to implement? Kind of what's the, the cost factor there? And then how does that translate to low income? So do you mean, do you mean the um, household model or just even the wellness model? The household model. Mm -hmm. There have been studies on the costs of the household model. And when you look holistically and you take into account the fact that this next generation wants those environments so from a marketing perspective they stay more full um, because people have private rooms there's less sharing of infection so the cost is uh is much better because you're not having to fight infections um, from a housekeeping point of view you um, 
uh, because someone has their own private space and they feel ownership about that space, it they take care of their room more, so the housekeeping costs go down. Um, there's less food waste because people are selecting what they want to eat together. So there's all these kind of built-in savings, and operationally, you have less of a hierarchy, and operationally, you can take the same type of number of people, distribute them in different ways, where someone, instead of being a specialist in delivering the food from the main kitchen, you know, pushing the food down the corridor to where it gets served, that person has more of a universal uh, job description. So they might be in the small kitchen in the household, they, they might plate, help plate for some, somebody, they might spend more time sitting next to somebody, the number of hours ends up being the same, but the, um, the amount of personal touch time increases. The person is no longer wheeling things back and forth. They're able to sit next to Marge and say, how was your day today? How are you feeling today? That makes a huge difference. Makes a huge difference, indeed. So um, there's there's been a question about uh, repurposing high vacant high-rises. Um, that might have been office space prior to uh, for senior living. Have you run into that question, that conversation, and do you have any thoughts on it? We're constantly thinking about um, how do you create affordable models or, or what's happening in the general built environment that we should be aware of that will radically change the future of senior living. We, um, we did a study called Clean Slate, where we researched all of these, and it's on our website if people want, um, for Perkins Eastman, and we researched all of these outside influencers uh, to see how that might change senior living. And we see with COVID, certainly, that the hospitality industry is being affected, that retail industry is being affected, and that the office environments are being affected. Now. It's very natural to convert most hotels into a senior living. It has a main kitchen, has a dining room, typically has some meeting rooms. There's a sense of entry, that hospitality feeling is there. And while you might be limited to a single room, there are ways of renovating and joining rooms and converting spaces that, that are a cost, but, but not a huge impact. Uh, next would be repurposing of retail environments. There are a lot of shopping malls that have retail spaces that are going out of business. And the idea of potentially injecting a senior living community on what is a huge parking lot and, and um, maybe taking away some of those retail units and putting a place where people can live, where they can walk inside, where they can um, use the gym, go to the movie, use the eatery, um, leverage off of some of those common areas in a shopping mall is something that we've started talking to mall operators about, that uh, they should be looking at this new kind of model as a way of solving some of their real estate issues. As for office buildings in particular, they're especially high-rise office buildings, I think there's difficulty with both the depth of typical office structures so that you don't have enough 
space that's adjacent to a window um, for a unit. And then many of them frequently don't have operable windows. And um, that idea of having fresh air or being able to walk out onto a balcony, particularly with what we've learned with COVID, is going to be increasingly important. So I'm not saying it's not possible. In fact, we're looking at a project in Arizona where we're repurposing a medical office building, uh, potentially. Um, but it's not cheap. It's going to be, it's not the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. It's going to be expensive. Well, I have to say, Leslie, this half hour has gone by so quickly that I have millions more questions for you. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time. But I would like to ask you if there's any one final thought you'd like to share with our listeners. And I'm going to um, preface this by saying, listeners, there will be on the podcast page links to all of the references that Leslie has shared with us. So you'll be able to catch those. But is there anything else, Leslie, that you'd like to leave us as a final thought? Yes, um, I think as anybody's approaching senior living design, um, I think sometimes there's an idea that that seniors are them. Um, they're they're you know old, frail. There's there's a lot of misconceptions about what seniors are. My mom, who's 83, even has misconceptions about what seniors are <laughs> because she's certainly not old. Um, and, and I, I agree with her, she's not. Um, so I think we need to adjust the dial on our perception of, of seniors, how we design for them, who they are, how we include them in society. I think that um, society, particularly with COVID, with, with senior environments as they are, and seniors dying at much higher rate, I think we, it is, it is finally time that from a society, we need to consider our elders and give them the respect they deserve and create environments for them that uplift them and their spirit in their lives. That's a beautiful final ending from our guest, Leslie Moldau, principal at Perkins Eastman, talking about senior living. We are very, very grateful for your time with us today, Leslie. This was fun. Thanks. Thank you so much. And for all our listeners, this will be available on all the podcast channels that you search. I, the Spotify, iTunes, etc., etc., etc. We will look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon. Bye-bye.